Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Benjamin Edwards, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas William S. Boyd School of Law, and Anthony Rickey, founder of Margrave Law, LLC. We'll be discussing their forthcoming paper in The Business Lawyer, Uncovering the Hidden Conflicts in Securities Class Action Litigation, Lessons from the State Street Case. I'll link to that paper in the show notes for today's episode. Ben, Tony, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having us. This is Ben. Thank you for having us. Uh, This is Tony. So uh, as I mentioned in the intro, we're discussing your article, Uncovering the Hidden Conflicts in Securities Class Action Litigation, uh, Lessons from the State Street Case, uh, which is forthcoming in the business lawyer. Before we really kind of get into the, the focus of the article, could you set the stage a little bit? Uh, you you open the article with identifying some issues in the past with M&A and securities litigation, potential conflicts between class counsel, absent shareholders, that sort of thing, and some reforms that were urged and and adopted. And it would be great if you could provide some of that stage setting for us. Certainly. Uh, This is Tony. Before 1995 and before the PSLRA, there was a concern about classes of plaintiffs who were repeat litigators. And one of the concerns was that repeat litigators were being captured by their attorneys who were bringing lawsuits solely for the benefit of the class action attorneys, or primarily for the benefit of the class action attorneys. So Congress passed the PSLRA and included provisions that encouraged courts to appoint the largest stockholder who sued a company in a securities class action as the lead plaintiff. The idea was to let the money do the monitoring, that organizations, usually institutional stockholders who had larger interests in a corporation, would be more interested in monitoring their counsel. And the concern here is that the potential conflict of interest for a class counsel is that they may try to settle for a lesser victory or a lesser settlement than might be available because it ensures them a fee. Whereas if they take a greater risk and lose, they might not be able to recover a fee. And so the idea was that if you had a larger plaintiff monitoring counsel, that plaintiff would be less likely to let class counsel settle for nominal or lesser consideration. And the other concern was that class counsel, once they had reached a settlement, would attempt to extract a greater than optimal amount of attorney's fees. And so the idea was that a larger stockholders would have a greater incentive because they have a greater interest in the corporation to monitor counsel and keep their fees reasonable. The PSLRA contained a number of provisions to discourage this, but one of the largest was encouraging courts to presume that the largest stockholder was the most adequate or the uh, most appropriate representative. This has been just to jump in with a, with a quick example. If, if you're in these kinds of cases and you only have $23 of stock at stake, ultimately you're, you're not going to care what your counsel does. But if you have $23 million at stake, you may more closely supervise counsel and the fees may be significant enough for you to care at the settlement stage. 
1995, Congress passes the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, the PSLRA. Did that have any unintended consequences? Um, this idea of, of privileging the, the large shareholder that has a lot of skin in the game uh, as, a, as a lead plaintiff versus the, the smaller shareholder? This has been, again, the PSLRA definitely had a, a significant number of unintended consequences. But, but in some sense, some of the consequences we're talking about here were actually intended. Uh, it did reorient this litigation toward having more institutional investors, uh, you know, taking these lead plaintiff roles. And, and what, what that meant was that people who were interested in you know, pursuing so, so securities class action attorneys needed to have relationships with institutional investors in order to represent them. So, so there was a lot of development of those relationships in, in the wake of the PSRA. The, the biggest unintended consequence uh, that came out of the PSRA is, is actually in a little bit of a different area. And it's that after the PSRA was filed, about a third of overall securities litigation simply just shifted from federal court uh, to state courts because to avoid all these rules around the class actions, they just filed their class actions in state court. Congress dealt with that a few years later in the Securities Litigation Uniform Standards Act, uh, or SLUSA, you know, as it's known. But, that, but there were a significant number of changes you know, coming around uh, because of this. One of the, I guess, the focus, in fact, of your article is concealed or at least undisclosed financial arrangements or distortments around the settlement uh, process between attorneys and, and their clients and the fees that they, they might be able to earn in M&A and securities class actions. Could, could you speak to, to that idea and, and kind of its, its motivating role in, in this article? Uh, certainly. This is Tony. So there, there's two ways that concealed or undisclosed financial arrangements between attorneys, class action attorneys and class plaintiffs can distort incentives in M&A class actions. As we mentioned, class plaintiffs are supposed to monitor counsel to make sure that the litigation and the settlement is brought in the interest of the class and not brought in order to secure a fee for class counsel. But if a class plaintiff is itself getting side benefits, benefits that go to the class plaintiff and are not shared by the rest of the class. But if the class plaintiff is getting side benefits. So because these arrangements are concealed or undisclosed, it can be hard sometimes to know exactly where they're occurring, what role they're having, what magnitude they exist in. But a few have come to light and, and those you, you do discuss in, in your article. What have we learned from those cases? And could you give us a little bit of a background of, about some of the, the facts and the, the implications of those cases? Certainly. Ben, why don't we do it this way? You cover um, State Street and then I'll cover the other cases. Excellent. Happy, happy to lead off uh, with State Street. So, so one of the, the most fascinating things we've, we've seen recently is there's a State Street case and all the stuff coming out of it. Uh, so it, it was a securities case. It settled for somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 million. And the fees that were awarded to the group of plaintiffs firms involved uh, ranged up to about, I think it was about $75 million in fees. Now, there was a series of law firms involved. One of the firms was a very politically connected firm in Massachusetts. Uh, its managing you know, member or one of the significant partners involved uh, was former Speaker of the House uh, for the state of Massachusetts. And so the, the Boston Globe spotlight team was, was very interested in this law firm uh, and kept a close eye on it. Uh, and they started doing some you know, initial stories around political donations and other things the firm had done. 
Uh, but then when the State Street settlement came out, they they, they really dug into uh, the the fee request and the, the paperwork involved, and they, they found some interesting things. So one of the things they discovered was that the sort of the connected shareholder or the connected uh, you know, member of this law firm, uh, his brother was one of the people uh, who was listed as receiving fees in the case, and his brother was billed out I think at you know five hundred dollars an hour where all the other records they could find of this attorney making money were you know, for $60 an hour, $50 an hour as a court-appointed public defender in those kinds of cases. They also saw a lot of attorneys who were listed as contract attorneys at $400 plus an hour. And like good shoe leather reporters, they just called them up uh, and asked them how much they were paid uh, on an hourly basis. And what they found out is that these guys were only paid $30 an hour, but were billed out at you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 an hour. So they put this into a an article. And a few days after the article goes to print, the, the law firms involved send a letter to the court saying, uh, you know, Your Honor, we realize we may have uh, you know, gotten a few things wrong in our, our fee request, uh, but we, we don't think you should change anything. Uh, you know, the, the overall level of fees is still reasonable. We, we may have gotten a few details wrong. And so the court looked at this and, and became very skeptical. And it did something that no other court, to our knowledge, has done and it appointed a special master to look into what happened, to take discovery, to ask questions, and to find out you know, how this happened. And what the special master discovered was that there was you know, a number of irregularities. Uh, one of them was that as soon as the money came in to one of these law firms, it got something like its share was $20 million. And as soon as it got the money, it wired about, I think, you know, four plus million dollars to an attorney in Texas. Apparently, the, the entire reason that money was sent to that attorney was not because he'd done any work on the case, but because he had introduced the lead plaintiff to the law firm. And it was just a, a straight up referral agreement. And so the, the, the question was, well, how is this appropriate? Is this right? Is this, you know, is this fair? Uh, and, and are the fees that are being charged in this case really you know, reasonable? So the, the, the court has been doing more uh, on this, and it, it's, still, it, it's still uncertain exactly what's going to happen in terms of the overall fee level. Uh, whether the court will will claw back any of that or reduce any of it, so that's that's what we've seen you know, coming out of State Street. And the interesting thing about it is this conflict where the the attorney who is receiving all this money for introducing the lead plaintiff, uh, it also came out that that he had there were emails saying that he had uh, you know pulled political favors, spent time and money in Arkansas, which is where the lead plaintiff is from, uh, in order to get this lead plaintiff to engage in this kind of litigation. And so it raises these questions about whether or not these lead plaintiffs are really engaging in this litigation because they believe it's in their best interest and the best interest of the class, or whether some political favor is behind it. And it really, the, the, the question the court asked is, well, once the, the 4.1 mil or the $4 million or so went to this Texas attorney, where did it go from there? Uh, and, and how was that in, involved in making sure? These are lots of things we really just don't know uh, at this point. So this is um, Tony. I think it's actually worth reading a section of the email um, oh, yeah. from yeah. the from the Texas attorney because it, it really is kind of shocking when you just look at it on the page. And the email reads: "We got you ATRS as a client after considerable favors, political activity, money spent, and time dedicated in Arkansas, and Labaton would use ATRS to seek lead counsel appointments in institutional investor fraud and misrepresentation cases." 
where Labaton is successful in getting appointed lead counsel and obtains a settlement or judgment award, we split Labaton's attorney fee award 80-20 period. And that was one of the emails that came out in the case. One thing that Ben didn't mention about the Boston Globe article, though, is that none of that information is actually in the Boston Globe article because the Boston Globe didn't know about it. The Boston Globe's analysis was mostly based upon public records. In other words, records in the case that anybody could have looked at, but as part of the process, as part of the class action settlement process, no one does in the normal case. It's often not very adversarial. By the time you get to a class action settlement, the plaintiffs want to settle and the plaintiff's counsel want to get a fee. The defendants want to settle, so they have no incentive to put before the court anything that would question the adequacy of the settlement or the adequacy of representation. And what the Boston Globe really focused on that caused all of this was the fact that some of the attorneys, the either staff attorneys or contract attorneys, had been booked into the lodestar of more than one law firm. And so that was just something that if you happened to look at the paperwork and looked through it in detail, it's obvious on the face of the paperwork that it was a mistake. But the kind of deeper questions involving the attorney from Texas, involving these political issues, wasn't something you were going to be able to see until the special master was appointed. Right. So, so Ben, um, jumping back in here. So one, one of the really interesting things here is that there, there's, there's probably two categories of problems that more scrutiny in these cases could uncover. You know, one is you know, simple you know, mistakes, things that you would be able to catch by reviewing public records where just someone who doesn't have an incentive to rush it through might catch and be able to solve. And then there's a whole other category of problems, which only someone like the special master would be able to uncover. So the, the thing the Boston Globe caught was sitting there uh, you know, in plain view, but nobody really had much of an interest to go looking at it other than the Boston Globe. So uh, this is Tony again. One of the uh, things that we discuss in our article is whether or not there are other kinds of hidden conflicts of interest between class action plaintiffs and their counsel that are not being surfaced in front of courts because it doesn't come up in the, the standard settlement approval process. And so that's where uh, we get into cases beyond State Street. And a lot of this has just come out in our research of based on publicly available documents, things like minutes of public sector pension funds, which are often available online. The conflict that scholarship has mostly looked at is direct pay, what's called pay to play. The risk that class counsel somehow channel benefits to people who political entities that control a, a potential class plaintiff, usually a pension fund. So some of the scholarship has looked at political donations to people who appoint members of the board of a pension fund. But we looked a little deeper and tried to identify some other potential conflicts of interest. So for instance, the ecosystem is often a little more complex than just class action plaintiff, class action counsel, lawsuit. There are often local counsel who work for the particularly public sector pension funds and perhaps private sector pension funds. In that case, we don't know because often the documents aren't public. Mm -hmm. You have counsel who are local counsel for these public sector pension funds who do work beyond the securities class actions. And they'll often help to manage the relationship between the public sector pension fund and uh, their class counsel. And we found instances where 
you have arrangements with the local council where because they get a share of the security fees, they offer lower fees for their other non-securities work to their class action plaintiffs, either by saying, well, we're going to forego fee increases that we otherwise would have taken or by agreeing to lower fees for their non-class action work. And that obviously provides a benefit to the uh, class plaintiff, to the public sector pension fund who uses these attorneys for non-class action work. One other thing that uh, we found looking at some of these cases was local council who provide other miscellaneous benefits to their to their clients, such as setting up scholarship funds for the benefit of the participants in a pension fund or their children, or taking members of the board to educational classes and conferences, uh, or in one case, class council contributing to a fund's holiday party. Now, whether these are inappropriate or not, or whether they would cause a fund to be inadequate is something that there's really no case law on because these potential conflicts rarely get surfaced to reviewing courts. So there are potential conflicts that are lurking in in the world of M&A and, and securities class actions. What can courts do to police these issues? Should we see, for example, more special masters as we did in the, the State Street case? Or are there other things that the courts have within their, their tool set to police this issue? Uh, so, so this is Ben. Yes, there, there's a lot uh, that should be done here. Well, one of the things you highlighted was the the benefits of potentially appointing more class guardians or special masters. You know, this would be something that could be done at you know either your class certification uh, or potentially you know, authorizing them at the settlement stage to you know, conduct some kind of you know, limited discovery. The, the idea is essentially that there's there's going to be information that the court probably needs to see or probably should see, and then you know, be able to make that determination. And, and the parties don't have the best incentives to bring that information to the court. Another reform we recommend is changing the disclosure rules, Tom. So at the outset, we, we think courts should know, uh, or the, the class plaintiffs should just go ahead and disclose every lawyer, every counsel that's going to be benefiting, you know, from the litigation and all the financial arrangements uh, between the you know, counsel, the class, any kind of fee agreements, but you know, one of the things you know, to know here is that even if you have this rule, the, the PFRA also put in a disclosure rule around you know, disclosing how many other cases you, this particular plaintiff has shown up in. But compliance with that rule hasn't, hasn't been great. Uh, these rules are not necessarily you know, always you know, self-enforcing. So you're going you're to need more than just you know, disclosure or just a disclosure requirement. Now, finally, our, our last proposal here is to, to think about what it means to be an adequate representative uh, for a class. And so if, if, you, if you have a, a rule that says, you know, if you are caught, uh, you're not making disclosures or you're doing something inappropriate in this context, that a court might rule that you were not adequate to serve as a class representative or as, as a class counsel and you know, have, have that be something that could cause them to be out of this repeat player game, where if they're not able to charge these fees again and again and again and collect uh, you know, these really enormous returns in the future, you know, the threat of losing access to that revenue stream might deter uh, a lot of bad behavior here. Do you think that some of these court-based reforms or remedies would be enough, or do 
do we need to see Congress get involved or is there their policy that's beyond what the courts can do that that's needed to address some of these issues? So this is Tony. I think it depends on where the cases are brought and it depends on the jurisdiction. A lot of these cases are brought in Delaware and there the Court of Chancery or the Delaware Supreme Court might be able to adopt rule changes on their own. In those cases, the kind of reforms we're talking about could be adopted as part of the Court of Chancery rules. However, in recent years, we've seen a lot of M&A class actions leaving Delaware and going to federal courts after Delaware tried to crack down on what were called disclosure-only settlements, a, a kind of particularly troublesome stockholder class action. And plaintiffs, instead of stopping bringing those cases, merely left Delaware and started going to jurisdictions that gave these cases less rigorous scrutiny. So what we know from that is that if one jurisdiction clamps down on these cases, it may just result in them moving somewhere else. So in federal courts, it may be that Congress needs to act in order to ensure that the rules are uniform across the country with regard to securities class actions. Absent that, we can expect that class plaintiffs will just migrate from the jurisdictions with the most rigorous scrutiny to the jurisdictions with the least rigorous scrutiny. This, this has been, uh, you know, this is something we've seen before, something that happened as soon as the PSLRA was passed uh, with an enormous volume shifting from federal to state courts. And it's something we've seen very recently. Seventh Circuit adopted you know, a Delaware standard for more closely scrutinizing some kinds of settlements. And it was the only circuit to see a decline in, uh, in filings. And so the the players in this space are extraordinarily sophisticated. So this is Tony. One thing that I would say about the three reforms that we propose is that they're all self-reinforcing. So while any of them would be a step forward, all of them work together in a way. So for instance, Ben mentioned that disclosure reforms haven't been a panacea in the PSLRA because they're not self-enforcing. Well, if courts adopted a, a rule stating that compliance with those disclosure requirements was part of being an adequate plaintiff and that failure to comply with them would result not only in being found inadequate in this case, but in needing to notify courts in other jurisdictions that they'd been found inadequate in this case, there would be a far greater incentive to voluntarily disclose. Similarly, harsher sanction for a failure to disclose conflicts of interest might mean that a special master is not required in all cases. Uh, A court could suggest or state that it's going to appoint a, a special master or a class guardian in maybe one out of five cases, but not tell the plaintiffs which case it would be appointed in. At that point, there would be a much greater incentive for voluntary compliance. What are some of the takeaways you would like either academic listeners or practitioners who are listening to this podcast or reading the article to to take from it? So I I think the key takeaway in our, our paper stems from the comparison that we make from the State Street case to the earlier scandal involving Milberg Weiss in the early part of this century. And The comparison we make is on one point. In both cases, the underlying problematic conduct did not get discovered through the regular class action litigation process. In the Milberg-Weiss case, the conduct came to light because one of the firm's clients 
turned whistleblower after he was arrested for unrelated wrongdoing. And in State Street, the court appointed a special master only after the Boston Globe exposed the problem. What the State Street case shows is that the existing class action procedures aren't sufficient to uncover these potential conflicts of interest between class plaintiffs, class counsel, and absent stockholders. And we need processes that are going to surface these conflicts so that courts can address them and figure out what is and isn't appropriate in this space. Our guests today have been Ben Edwards, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law, and Tony Rickey, Principal at Margrave Law, LLC. We've discussed their forthcoming article in The Business Lawyer, Uncovering the Hidden Conflicts in Securities Class Action Litigation, Lessons from the State Street Case, which I'll link to in the show notes for today's episode. Ben, Tony, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.